For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear about one woman's year eating only fresh, whole foods when Megan Kimball talks about her book, Unprocessed. Find out what National Independence Week could mean to the Tucson economy. Krista Scheel looks back at Desert Bloom, a film shot in Tucson in 1986 that documents a bygone era. And learn why Cyclone Bill and Climax Jim rank as two of Arizona's least successful outlaws. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Today, Megan Kimball is the managing editor of Edible Baja, Arizona. In 2012, when she was 26 and a recent transplant to Tucson, Kimball spent a year determined to eat more wholesomely, without favorites like ice cream, pizza, or processed foods. It was a diet, but not with the goal of slimming down. She writes about that year in her book, Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food. Mariana Dale interviewed Megan Kimball about the experience. So to start out, how did you define unprocessed? That was a really hard question, and I spent a lot of my year and the book trying to answer that, what makes food processed. Because, of course, all food is processed. Cooking is a kind of process, you know, so is preserving. And for the most part, processing has been really good for human nutrition and for food. You know, think about making grains into bread. That was a really good thing for us. So for the purposes of my year, a food was unprocessed if I could theoretically make it in my home kitchen. I came up with that definition sort of as a way to imagine how food is made. I could imagine how a wheat berry from a field could grind up and become whole grain flour. In fact, I got a little hand crank grain grinder and made my own flour. But I couldn't take that a step further and make refined white flour because I needed you know, industrial machines and chemicals. And so that was one of the first foods you attempted to make was your own bread. And since grain is kind of one of the foundational foods of modern humans, tell me about what that experience was like. It definitely was a learning curve. Bread is, I think, really easy to make decent bread and really hard to make really good bread. I bought wheat berries, whole wheat berries. Arizona grows lots of great wheat, heritage varieties of wheat. And I ground those wheat berries up into whole grain flour. I got this little hand crank grain mill. And so, and then I used that flour, added yeast and water and honey and made bread. And you kind of, I mean, overindulged the first time you made it. (laughs) Yeah, bread is definitely one of those foods that for me, I have a hard time eating moderate amounts of. And that was the first sort of time that I learned too that the wonderful thing about eating unprocessed foods is that they're really filling and they're really satisfying. But I had been accustomed to eating sort of low carb bread and diet foods and those don't fill you up in the same way. And so bread was what really taught me unprocessed food fills you up differently and so you have to eat less of it. You milled flour, you made cheese and mead, but unprocessed wasn't really about disconnecting yourself from the rest of the world. You did continue to go out to eat. And so how did you apply your rules to the real world? 
Right, exactly. Going out to eat was really hard because the real world is full of processed food. It was really important to me to be able to still go out and maintain connections with my friends and family, and so much of our social lives happens over food. So my rule for that was sort of try your best. The first time I went out to eat, I remember I asked the server, like, 12 questions, you know, what is in your salad dressing? How is your bread made? What's in your tortillas? And that becomes sort of prohibitive. You can't go out and ask that many questions. And so really, I tried to go to places that I thought were making food without a lot of additives, which conveniently is often local restaurants. You know, local artisans who make food tend to not add crazy stuff because their food is being consumed right there in their community. This wasn't really the first time in your life that you had carefully monitored and measured what you ate. You talk about dieting and doing Weight Watchers. And so how did this year change the way that you felt about food? So I had done Weight Watchers before. I had, you know, like so many women had struggled with my weight since I was 16, you know, and had tried different diets in terms of how to stay full and slim and all the things that we want to be. I think Doing diets like Weight Watchers, while really effective for some people, changes how you view food and you start seeing food as sort of sums of its component parts. So, you know, fat, fiber, calories. And really, eating unprocessed sort of forced me to see food as nourishment, as what's going to satisfy me and keep me full. Because the way that diet foods are made is that the stuff in them, fats or carbohydrates, is processed out and replaced with chemicals. So if you decide that you're not going to eat any chemicals, you just can't eat those diet foods. And it was a sort of revelation to realize that I could eat whole foods, you know, full fat cheese and grains and all, like I could eat anything I wanted within the constraints of unprocessed and not gain weight because those foods are satisfying. You were making less than $20,000 a year when you wrote the book, and at the end, you totaled up. And how much did eating unprocessed end up costing you? I kept every grocery receipt for every purchase I spent, and I tallied it up at the end of the year and found out that eating unprocessed, which means mostly organic, largely local, cost me about $4.50 a meal, which to me was less than I thought it was going to be. I thought that that was a really reasonable amount to be spending on food, particularly because it's really an investment in health. At the time, that was about a quarter of your income, which is a lot for a lot of people. Eaters in the U.S. spend a smaller fraction of their disposable income on food than any other country in the world. So we spend about, I think it's about 6 or 7% of our income on food. A quarter of your income on food is a huge proportion, but it's actually on par with what most other countries spend. It's been a couple of years since your year unprocessed. I imagine you've had quite a few Sonoran hot dogs and (laughs) maybe a frozen pizza in between that time. But how did that one year change your eating habits today? My year unprocessed profoundly changed how I eat. I still eat about 90% unprocessed. I love to cook, so it's just as easy to continue cooking unprocessed. So much of the work was upfront of figuring out what I wanted to eat and what was unprocessed. And so now that I have that figured out, You know, I love the way that it makes me feel. The food is better. It tastes better. You know, why would I return to low-fat cheese? (laughs) That doesn't taste good. You have a lot of takeaways in your book. And what's one thing people can do to kind of unprocess their own lives? I have a couple of ideas of how people can unprocess their own lives. The first thing I would say is to read the ingredient label on every food that you're buying and eating. It's sort of amazing once you flip it over and look at its underbelly, the kinds of things that are in foods. I think it will be surprising. It was certainly surprising to me. 
And then the other thing, which is sort of the conclusion of the book, is to think about how you're spending your money on food. Voting with your dollars is a sort of cliche, but it, I think it's true that consumer spending shapes our food system. And so if consumers invest more of their money in local foods, foods that are produced sustainably and mindfully without lots of crazy additives, there will be more of those foods. If we continue to buy foods made by large corporations, those corporations will continue to make money and make foods that aren't good for us. Megan Kimball's book is Unprocessed, My City-Dwelling Year of Reclaiming Real Food. There are some pictures on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. On the 4th of July, millions of people will celebrate Independence Day. But fewer may know that the holiday is preceded by National Independence Week, as in independent businesses. It's a push to boost local economies that gets underway this weekend. And next, Tony Paniagua talks with a guest who will explain what it can offer to Tucson shoppers. Lisette DeMars, you are the Southern Arizona Membership Coordinator for Local First Arizona. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So what is Local First Arizona? We are an organization, a nonprofit, and our main goal is to help people keep jobs and dollars here in Arizona. And we do that by teaching people how to source things locally and shop locally and find things locally. And then by putting on great events like the one coming up this weekend um, to help connect people to the local movement. The 10th annual Independence Week or Indie Week, uh, what is that all about? It goes from Saturday, June 27th to July 5th. We're encouraging Arizonans to celebrate their independent businesses surrounding Independence Day. Um, it's a little play on words, but it's a time for Arizonans to um, support their neighbors and support the economy that really keeps Arizona alive, especially this time of year. So what do you do if you are going to be participating in this week? not barbecues. You want people to go out and spend some money elsewhere, We do. Right? We want them to go visit their neighbors and shop. Um, we actually have something they can find on our website, which is www.localfirstaz.com. It's called the Golden Coupon. So hundreds of businesses all over Arizona have signed up to give 20% off of something. So we encourage people to check it out. You can sort it by city and you can find everything from discounts on mattresses to discounts on haircuts to discounts on dinners. It's very diverse. Um, everybody plays along and it's a really good time to find some very good deals. And why is this important economically? I know the summertime is usually a very slow period anyway for mm -hmm. merchants. You are right. Um, summertime, as many people in Arizona knows, especially in Tucson, we're a college town, so everybody goes away. Um, it's a really important time to support your locally locally owned businesses by actually going in and visiting them and buying things. But also buying local has a profound economic impact no matter what time of year you're shopping. And that is that for every dollar you spend locally, about four times more stays here in our economy than if you spent that same dollar at a chain. Here in Arizona, that statistic is for every dollar you spend, it's about 43 cents here versus only 13 cents stays if you spend it at a chain. So we encourage people to buy local all year long. This is just a 
um, our Independence Week, our Indie Week celebration, where we actually have coupons and we have festivals and parties. We're doing a passport event. So um, we give people a, a lot of different ways to have a fun time supporting their businesses. And you say this is also a great way to create jobs. It is. What we know about local businesses is that they tend to hire other local businesses. So we often use the example of coffee shops, but um, a local coffee shop is more likely to have a local CPA, a local window washer, a local architect, a local graphic designer, whereas a chain, they already have that set up where corporate headquarters is somewhere else. So yeah, if you're a college graduate and you're wanting to get a gig, I say go make sure you're buying local coffee because those guys are the ones who will hire you to do their, do their logos for them. And you were telling me ahead of the interview, it's uh, buy local or local first, but Mm -hmm. not local always, because there is a balance, right? Of course. We live in the desert, so we all know there are certain things you just can't, we can't make here, we don't have here. So we do have a business directory that we we encourage people to look at so that they can see if they can find what they need here locally. Again, it helps create jobs and it helps recirculate those desperately needed tax dollars here in, in our community. But if you can't find it locally, We encourage you to maybe if you can't find um, what you need at a local grocery store, you can still shop at a grocery store and find Arizona-based goods. So we talk about Hickman's Eggs and Shamrock all the time. They're based here in Arizona. And if you can go to Abasha's, that's great because they're locally owned. But if not, you can still find those Arizona products at other stores. There's always a few items, at least, that you can buy locally, even if not 100% of everything you buy, right? And we tell people when they can do it. Actually, on our website, you can um, take the pledge for Indie Week, and um, that will help us um, actually track the economic impact that we can have on our community. Why are you so passionate about this, Lisette? Well, I wear many different hats in the community. I live downtown, I work in early childhood education, and I, like I said, I ran a business for many years. And I think that buying local helps connect people to their community and creates a sense of pride. So not only does it have a profound economic impact, but it has this impact on our community where people want to stay here, want to invest here, and really care about what's happening. They, um, they show up, and that makes it a better community. And you said there's a connection between lots of different uh, topics, children, economy, Mm -hmm. jobs. Well, we know that locally owned businesses tend to be, um, they're give more to charitable contributions and local nonprofits. People who are connected to their community tend to be more likely to vote, more likely to volunteer their time, and more likely to give charitably as well. So for me, wearing all these hats, I see this beautiful intersection where supporting your locally owned businesses means supporting your community. It means supporting education and the, and the families that live you know, and, and run those businesses. And I guess one of the great things about this is that it's really easy to do. If you're going to go eat somewhere, go look for a restaurant or go look for a store. You know, as a matter of fact, Tony, there was a study that came out of Grand Rapids, Michigan a few years ago. It was called the 10% Shift Study. And Grand Rapids, Michigan is roughly the same size as Tucson. And what they showed is that if the community of 500,000 could shift just 10% of what they spent every year at chains to locally owned businesses, it would create 1,600 new jobs and $130 million of additional revenue in just one year. So think of the crazy impact we could have if one out of every 10 trips to the coffee shop, you chose a local one, or if people shifted where they got their gas or their prescriptions. Um, that would make that would create literally create jobs and revenue here in Tucson. 
Finally, what is next after Independence Week, which ends on July 5th? Well, coming up in September, I'm very excited to say for the first time ever, this will be our fourth annual Farmer Chef Connection. So this is um, going to be moved from the center of the state down to Tucson this year. And it's when we get all the restaurants together who are really good at making food and all of the farms together who are really good at growing it. And we put them in the same space at the same time. It'll be at... um, the uh, Tucson Convention Center on September 16th, and it is open to the public. So if people want to come on down and taste the delicious food being grown in Southern Arizona, we invite them to. And you can find out more on our website. And if they're looking for another opportunity to shop in November, we have uh, Buy Local Month, which is kicks off the day after Thanksgiving, traditionally Black Friday. So um, we encourage people to check out our website, www.localfirstarizona.com, and they can find out all sorts of information about these events. All right, Lisette DeMars, Southern Arizona Membership Coordinator for Local First Arizona. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much. There's more information about National Independence Week on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. A little-talked-about movie from the mid-1980s recently caught Chris DeShields' attention. Although he found a lot to like about the performances and the story, it was the backdrop of the movie that almost stole the show. Here's Chris DeShields to explain why. On some rare occasions, I experience a double enjoyment from a movie. If, number one, it's a good film, and number two, it was made in my hometown. The movie I have in mind today is called Desert Bloom and it was shot here in Tucson about 30 years ago, starting in the winter of 1984, and released in 86. An independent film funded by the Sundance Institute and directed by Eugene Corr. Desert Bloom didn't make a big splash at the box office, but it's a very rewarding experience. For the latest in atomic age fashion, the beautiful Las Vegas girl of today wears atomic age apparel to any affair. I got an idea what you can make out there. Jets. It was a time when life was supposed to be easier. Who do they remind you of? The Andrews sisters. Oh, yeah. A time of bobby socks and dungarees and secret bonds. (laughs) But for one family. All my girls. Don't I get anything, Jack? It was also a time of dark secrets. Jack's And lies. Jack and I had a couple of drinks, and um, Rose got the wrong idea. I don't want to live here anymore. Of growing apart. Get out! And coming together. It was a time when the love of one family would be put to its toughest test. It's about a family living in Las Vegas in 1951, before the boom that turned the city into a gambling mecca. 13-year-old Rose Chismore, played by Annabeth Gish, lives in a bungalow with her mother and two younger sisters. Her stepfather, Jack, played by John Voigt, runs a little gas station on the outskirts of town. He's a World War II vet with a bad leg who suffers traumatic flashbacks from his combat experiences, what they would call PTSD today. He's also a braggart and an alcoholic who vents his rage on his wife, played by Jo Beth Williams, and his stepdaughters, especially Rose, whom he mistreats, despite her many attempts to get him to love and approve of her. The sufferings and occasional joys of this family play out against the background of the Red Scare and the arms race, the Korean War, and 
regular air raid drills at school where the kids are taught to duck and cover. The increasingly paranoid Jack, drinking vodka and listening to his shortwave radio, thinks that something big is up, and he turns out to be right. The government announces plans to conduct nuclear tests in the desert, about 60 miles from Las Vegas. There are a lot of different elements in this coming-of-age story, some of which verge on stereotype, such as the arrival of a beautiful and promiscuous aunt, played by Ellen Barkin, who acts as a freeing influence on her young niece. But the film overall is quite moving. The parallels between the repression and denial of early 1950s America and the same forces on a smaller scale within the family have a poignant effect. John Voight, in the thankless role of the stepfather, who could have easily come off as just a monster, imbues his character with a palpable mixture of frustration, weakness, and bumbling good intentions. He just nails this part. You can't take your eyes off him. Most importantly, however, the director, after interviewing over 500 girls, picked Annabeth Gish to play Rose, a 13-year-old unknown who had never acted in a film before and playing a part that requires her to be in almost every scene, essentially having to carry the movie, Gish is terrific, touching and vulnerable and holding her own with tremendous poise throughout the picture. Thanks to her performance, Rose's growing pains come to symbolize something greater, evoked in the haunting final scene where she watches the atomic mushroom cloud blossoming on the horizon. And now for the second part of the double pleasure I mentioned. Desert Bloom was shot in Tucson, on a big empty lot south of Broadway along 3rd Avenue. The filmmakers put up a house and a trailer park. In another section near the railroad tracks, they put the gas station. There's a story that someone was fooled by the realistic-looking trailer park and approached the set to ask how much it would cost to rent there. As Rose and her friends walk to and from school, you may notice many lovely old houses in that neighborhood. And in one prominent shot, looking down 4th Avenue from 16th Street, you can clearly see the A on A Mountain in the distance. The school that Rose attends, with its mission-style arches, is in fact the University Heights School on Park Avenue just a little north of Speedway, which is now an apartment complex. The filmmakers also took over a block on Congress Street for a few weeks, if you can imagine, from the Rialto Theater west to Fifth Avenue, and decorated it with kitschy 1950s signs and decor to make it look like the Las Vegas Strip in 1951, shooting scenes there at night when the businesses were closed. You can see the Rialto Marquee off to the left, and reflected in a big shop window as Rose walks down the street early on, is the unmistakable architecture of the Congress Hotel. It may seem odd to some people, but I find such details very affecting, especially in this case because Tucson is standing in for a completely different place at a remote time. So to see these familiar details in locations through which I've walked or driven on countless occasions, employed to evoke a vivid fictional dream, is like peeking behind the curtain at a magic show and seeing how the tricks are performed. The preservation of life's images on film, a miracle we've come to take for granted, coincides here with a sense of the irretrievable passage of time in real life, here in our real hometown. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShiel. There are many tall tales about Arizona in the Old West. 
Historian Jane Eppinga has heard more than a few. Next, she'll share highlights from stories about two men who lived in Clifton, Arizona, who never became famous as outlaws, only as bad examples. If one were to search the world over, it would be difficult to find two more inept outlaws than Cyclone Bill and Climax Jim from Safford, Arizona. William Ellison Beck, also known as Cyclone Bill, was average in height but crippled in the left knee, which gave him a decided limp. He claimed it was from a gun shop. Most people said he was never shot. It is said that he lived by his wits and there's no evidence that he ever went hungry. <laughs> when Judge Fletcher Doan introduced a friend to Cyclone Bill, Cyclone replied, I will give you to understand, sir. My name is Beck. The judge responded, Oh yes, I know you are Mr. Beck, but as you are popularly known as Cyclone Bill, I didn't suppose you would object to being introduced as such. Cyclone Bill retorted, You are popularly known as a first-class son of a b but I don't think you would want to be introduced as such. Cyclone claimed he had studied law in Texas and opened up a Clifton Law Office. During his first court term, a man charged with stealing cattle said he could not afford a lawyer. The judge says, I will appoint Mr. Beck and his partner to defend you. The prisoner said, both of them? The judge said, yes, both of them. The prisoner said, then I plead guilty. Rufus' nephew, also known as Climax Jim, came from Washington, D.C. He got his nickname from the fact that he always chewed large wads of Climax tobacco. At one point in his life, this outlaw from Safford got the idea of robbing ocean liners, but he couldn't find anybody who had his foresight. Uh, Climax Jim took up ranching, acquired stock without the formality of a bill of sale. He served some time at the Yuma Territorial Prison for grand larceny. In December of 1906, the Bank of Marinci forwarded the Arizona Copper Company paychecks to the Clifton Bank. The checks were stolen from the post office, and Climax Jim was caught trying to cash one of them. He was brought to trial at Solomonville, and just as the prosecution was about to offer the check as evidence, it disappeared. Some said Climax Jim picked it off the table and ate it. The case was dismissed for lack of evidence. Jane Eppinga will have two books published this fall, Unsolved Arizona, A Puzzling History of Murder, Mayhem, and Mystery, and an installment in the Images of America series about how Tucson has changed over the last 50 years. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.